So last week I asked you the question, how did the sheep on Ixalan communicate with the dinosaurs? To which the answer was rampaging ferocidon, rampaging ferocidon. Uh, and well, I was on quite a lengthy flight this week uh, to Oklahoma City uh, and back again, because as you can tell by the green screen behind me, uh, I'm back in Gainsborough, the entertainment capital of the world. Anyway, uh, if you remember last week, I had that conversation with you about the conversation I'd had with the pro who said, where do you get the jokes? Uh, and I said, well, yes, sometimes I do actually sit there and look at a list. Well, on one of these long flights to Oklahoma City, I actually got out a long list because I thought, excellent, it's been out a while. There must be some more silly gags in there somewhere. And uh, there are. So now it turns out that there's a whole suite of communication-related gags because, of course, you start off and you say, so how did the sheep get in touch with the dinosaurs um, on Ixalan? And it's rampaging for Ostron, rampaging for Ostron. Except, of course, that doesn't work because everyone knows dinosaurs are a bit dumb and they're really not that technologically advanced. Um, so basically uh, what the sheep had to do was they had to set up uh, a mobile garrison um, where they could use their uh, Ethereum cell. Uh, and uh, then of course, well, you know what they did once they've got that all set up, they had to go ring Ceratops. That made me incredibly happy on a plane. I'm worried about my mental well-being, and so should you be. I'm Rich Hagen. Welcome to Talking Points, or Talking Points. Talking Points is brought to you by Hipsters of the Coast. Become a patron and support unique magic content like this at patreon.com slash hipsters of the coast. So, yes, welcome to the show. Uh, it's another edition. It's episode six of Talking Points, or Talking Points, uh, here on Hipsters of the Coast. Uh, I am your host, Rich Hagen, uh, back from a rather fine weekend in Oklahoma City. Do you know what? I don't know quite what the word is. It's not xenophobic. It's not racist. It's it's something -ist. I was amazed at the number of people who were prepared to tell me with a straight face, why are you going to Oklahoma City? Nobody wants to go there. I thought, well, this seems a little bit odd. I mean, presumably it's just a major city with lots of stuff going on and it's got the Oklahoma City Thunder um, and so on. Um, yeah, it was like almost everyone I spoke to was like, what takes you to Oklahoma City? As if it was sort of a demilitarised zone. Yeah, it wasn't quite Pyongyang, but felt like it uh, on the way. Anyway turned out to be a perfectly pleasant place with nothing whatsoever to do, um, except the Great American Banjo Museum. Dueling banjos. Ding, 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 and so on, which was rather fine, though I didn't get a chance to go inside. Fortunately, they had banjo music playing outside 24 hours a day. Ding, 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 and so on. Uh, so uh, that was rather rather marvellous. Uh, we were near Bricktown, uh, which was this, I suppose, renovated warehouses turned into bars. Although it was weird. Everything shut at no o'clock. Like, it's half past eight, says Big Restaurant. We're closing at nine because it's Sunday. Is everyone up at four to till the fields? 
I don't quite understand. I'm clearly missing something about the Oklahoma way of life here. Because all I really know about Oklahoma is the musical. You know, oh, what a beautiful morning. I've conducted that show multiple times. So, yeah, you know. And also I've watched South Park, the movie, which in case you don't know, is basically the opening number is Oklahoma, but with different words, very different words. So made it back from Oklahoma City. But weirdly, I was there when something was happening over here in Europe, which was Madrid. So we're going to start with Madrid. Then we're going to work our way to Oklahoma City and um, then we'll go home. And as usual on this show, I reckon the whole business will take five or ten minutes, maybe. So uh, Madrid. Well, the first thing was I woke up on Saturday morning to find out what was going on in Madrid. And the first thing that was happening in Madrid was lots of complaints in my inbox asking, where is the coverage of Grand Prix Madrid? You are not showing it. Why not? So I think we've sort of made a rod for our own back in a little way, because this year, um, in 2017, we tried uh, doing some double weekends. So, for example, the weekend of Warsaw and Atlanta, we would start the coverage in Warsaw with a complete European coverage team, and that's sort of 10 bodies, roughly. Uh, and then when the day was finished in Europe, we would cut across to the team in the US who would cover the rest of Atlanta, which in this case meant rounds four through nine or five through nine. And then on day two, we do the whole of Warsaw, finish off with the champion, cut across to Atlanta. They'd be down to the last couple of rounds of Swiss and then they'd have the top eight. Now, overall, of course, this meant more magic for the Veer, which is you know a win. Um, but from our point of view, um, as I'm sure you can imagine if you think about this for a moment, it involved sending two teams to two places on two continents for one and a half shows because half of Atlanta never got shown. And that's always the way if it's a European show and an American show, you show all of Europe and then some of America. And the reason for that is just time zones, because you might say, well, wouldn't it be better to show all of America and only half of Europe? You can make that case, but it doesn't work because of times. Because basically, if the bit you'd want to cut out of Europe is when America isn't on yet. right? So unless you just delay the whole thing and record and, you know, spend Sunday night in Europe, it just, it just doesn't work. So, uh, it just doesn't work, broadly, works out where we feel double coverage is. So, as hopefully a lot of you will have seen, in 2018, we're not doing that anymore. We're not trying to send two teams to two different places on two different continents the same weekend to basically double over the content. Why would we do that to to ourselves? We wouldn't, so we're not going to. Nonetheless, particularly because Oklahoma City hadn't even started coverage yet, of course, because it was later, a lot of people woke up on Saturday morning ready for, right, it's time for Grand Prix Madrid. This will be great. Team Unified Modern, and we love Modern. And then there was no coverage. So, uh, I mean, we did say it was on the website that the coverage was coming from Oklahoma City. 
But I do understand that when you just have this natural expectation that every weekend there's coverage and uh, it, you know, obviously there must be coverage of Grand Prix Madrid and then there wasn't. I understand that's very disappointing. Now, why Oklahoma City over Madrid? Largely one of format. Uh, Madrid was team unified modern, which meant there was going to be some weirdness in deck selection. And it was going to involve some compromises, uh, sometimes on card choice, that, quite frankly, almost none of you will ever have had or ever will have. Uh, because it's only in Team Unified Modern specifically that you run into this, where are we going to put our thought seizes and, and our Inquisition of Kozileks or whatever. Um, and so it felt to us like since we were clearly going to be showcasing Modern, the version of modern that made sense to showcase was the version that was real modern, i.e. what you play at your FNM without the restrictions. Um, it's kind of fun to do like Team Unified Standard like we did the week before with the World Magic Cup because that gives you something a little bit fresh. But for the most part, um, there was little enough difference between Team Unified Modern and Individual Modern that it wouldn't have celebrated diversity. It would have just confused things a little bit, like, why is nobody playing this? Or why are there so few burn decks? Or whatever it was. Um, so, for all those reasons, we ended up in Oklahoma City, which meant that Madrid had no video coverage. Um, and that upset a lot of people. So, we're sorry. Um, hopefully, you will know. Um, we've already put the list out of where we're going to be every weekend in 2018. And my word, are we going to be some places? We'll talk about that at the end of the show. But we got into Madrid. And the interesting thing about Madrid was there was this unified modern aspect to it. So there was just a single 9-0 team. And this was Heuser, Hawk and Yang. Um, Hauk and Yang. And the thing about Christian Hauk, this is super interesting because he's just come off Pro Tour Top 8. Uh, and you think, is that going to be one of those what one and done things? Is that going to be someone who, you know, just basically got lucky, as everyone does when they make the top eight, and then that's it for them? Uh, well, on the evidence of this, no. Um, they were the lone nine and O's. Now, there were eight teams on eight and one. Um, notable, uh, the French team of Louis Del Tour, uh, Nicolas Lagarde and Remy Fortier. Uh, they were 8-1, as were the German team of Tarao Severin, uh, fresh off a of GP Top 8, Jasper Grimmer, uh, and Oliver Rausch. Uh, then you had a couple of teams who would eventually go on to make the final four. Biesmans, Van Doyne, and Brands, and Romero Cano, uh, Tagores, and Ortiz Ross. Now, weirdly, the scoreboard for these events only gives you surnames. So unless you are literally encyclopedic, which a lot of people think I am, but actually no, you can't often tell who's on a team. For example, there were two teams with Gertsons on them. Well, one of those is going to be Simon, of coverage fame and Pro Tour champion. And one of them is going to be his younger brother, Dominic, who's also very good at magic, it turns out. Uh, eventually, you can work out who's who, but sometimes it's a bit of a head-scratcher. So we have one 9-0, we had eight eight and ones um, and then at seven oh and two so with double draw already Pedro de Diego Hector Cifuentes um, and um, Luis Salvato now I think this is a fantastic story um, 
Francisco Cifuentes, sorry, don't know why I said Hector. Um, so, Luis Salvato, gold pro, Argentinian captain uh, from the World Magic Cup. Pedro de Diego, also part of Team Argentina at the World Magic Cup 10 days ago. Uh, Francisco Cifuentes, the captain of Team Peru from the World Magic Cup. So the three of them get together and they decide that, yes, after um, a week at the World Magic Cup, they're going to combine Latin American resources and have a week in Europe and then turn up at Madrid as a team. Argentina and Peru working together, they were undefeated on day one. But they did have two draws, which is very bad news. Um, so that kind of meant they were sort of effectively in the seven and two bracket. Except if they got if they got five wins, that would all that would be enough, right? There'd be five the next day, 12-0-2, 14 rounds done. But two draws, bad news. Now, also with a draw, seven one and one, much more normal. Uh, Antonio Del Moral Leon, um, Pro Tour champion, with the Cabezas Munoz, and Tony Ramis Pascual, who's one of the best standard players around. Uh, less so in modern, but nonetheless very solid all round and constructed. So they were among the seven and seven one ones, uh, and people with draws were from tenth down to sixteenth. Now, you could argue that part of that um, is due to Lantern, Lantern control, and we will talk lots more about Lantern in a bit because we did something in Oklahoma City, and yes, it was well, it was a thing. Uh, so more. 16th on down, 7 and 2s, you've got the likes of Raf Levy, Loic Lebriand and Jeremy Dizani. Raf Levy, having taken a weekend off from the Pro Tour um, for the birth of his baby son, is now very much back in the game. Um, he's been to the last couple of events and we'll see him on coverage next year uh, as well. There was the Swedish team of Lindström, Londos and Nyström. And every time you get team trios and they're Swedish, I always think it's an NHL hockey line. It's like the second line for the Boston Bruins. Lindström on the left wing, Nyström on the right, Londos in the centre. Um, and uh, yes, none of them, as far as I know, play ice hockey, but I like to think that they do. Uh, Hendricks, Flock and Strasky were there amongst the seven and twos, as were uh, Koch, Gertsen and Gantz. That turned out to be Simon Gertsen uh, with uh, Grand Prix uh, Charleston winner. Yeah, that's right, isn't it, Charleston? Yeah, I think so. Charleston, that doesn't sound right. Carolina, uh, uh, yeah, well anyway, somewhere beginning with C, Andy Gantz, and Florian Koch, um, winner of Bochum, Leon, somewhere, 2010, 2012, I'm being a bit vague today, you know how it is, um, there were 44 teams at 7-2 or better, now just under that mark, 6 wins, 1 loss, 2 draws, see, more draws again, Pedersen, Marek Martin, Uza, and Gregor Kowalski. Kowalski, of course, from the Polish World Magic Cup team that made the final last week. Last week, Martin Uza said the World Magic Cup. He had found being uh, a captain very tough um, because there were just so many choices to make, not only in his own game, but on either side. He tweeted this week, coming off his 6-1-2, and two, so obviously a lot of games had gone long. He said, I don't think I've ever been more tired playing Magic. Remember, as a pro, he generally has three buys at all these events. He gets up, 
He has a shower. He has a leisurely breakfast. He wanders into the venue at 11 o'clock. He's still an hour and a half away from his first match. For most of us, with no buys, by the time we sit down to play him at one o'clock in the afternoon, we've played close to three hours of Magic. And of course, with no buys in team events, uh, he played the full nine rounds and had all these other matches to take care of. Now, obviously, Sohurek and Kowalski are a step above um, his two compatriots from the World Magic Cup. But that doesn't alter the fact that you've got choices to the left of you, choices to the right of you. Uh, and as I say, he's just said he, he'd, never, he'd never been so shattered um, at the end of a day one. Uh, also in there, um, the Finns, Kuzma, Hegfist and uh, Pertula. Uh, Chris Calcano was on this all-star, um, not quite three continent, but certainly um, three nationality or more like six nationality uh, team. Christian Calcano, Eduardo Sajgalic, um and Andrea Mangucci. They were six and three. Now, a word about Eduardo Sajgalic. So uh, he's... So first of all, disclosure, he's part of team coverage. He's going to be doing uh, some events for us next year. Um, but I'm not promoting him because of that. I'm promoting him because I think he's doing something really cool. I love modern. I know a lot of you do uh, as well. But there's a lot going on in modern. There are so many decks to choose from. Uh, and often, if you watch a, a modern streamer, they'll be on dredge or they'll be on storm or they will be a noted blue white control player whatever it turns out to be but most people have a pretty small range of decks that they're streaming at any given point and indeed their choice for what they're going to stream is generally based on some kind of plan uh, the plan being I am now testing for the Pro Tour, or I am going to Team Trios and I want to see how Blue Red Storm works and so on. Um, Eduardo has come up with a plan uh, that begins, I believe, the day after tomorrow, the 15th, um, I think is right. Let me just take a look. Yeah, I think that's right, on Friday. Um, so by the time you see this, that's probably tomorrow. Uh, and he is going to do 30 modern decks in 30 days. So for the next month, if you want to embed yourself in modern with someone who really does know what's going on, he's a very sharp guy, Eduardo, um, and uh, you know, in, in the top tiers of proness um, at the moment. Uh, it's a great opportunity to spend a month learning modern because everything will build on everything else. As you start with, I, I don't know what his order is for this, but you can bet that if you're going to play Lands and Control or Grixis Control, you'll have learnt stuff along the way by playing Burn and Infect and Affinity and all the different skills that go in. And you'll start seeing the same cards over and over, but from all the different sides. How important is Stony Silence against this deck? How important is Stony Silence against that deck? Um, I don't think I have an entire month to devote to Eduardo's stream, but I wish I did. Uh, because A, I think it's a great idea, and I like that ideas get rewarded. There's a surprise, an ideas person liking rewards for ideas. Uh, but I do, I do like ideas being rewarded. I think this is a really good one. I think Modern's the perfect format for it. You couldn't really do 30 decks in standard uh, and expect to do very well with a lot of them. Uh, and so I think that's just fantastic stuff. Very, very happy um, that Eduardo's found a niche 
to do that. Um, and uh, if you feel like giving him some support, um, go for it. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. Also 6-3. and three, Alessandro Portaro, Antonio De Rosa and Laporta. Also 6-3. Um, you have the likes of Lucas Blahon, Reed Duke, Joe Larson. Now, that was one of the superstar teams. Reed Duke staying over um, from the World Magic Cup, um, where, of course, the USA were knocked out in the last 16 by Wales. Um, and they went 6-3, and three, which was disappointing. Uh, you had the Danes, which was Enna Voldsen and Michael Bond-Pilgaard. That's two of the three that won Grand Prix Lyon. But Chris Larson couldn't be there because he was back to the Navy to go be a, go be a chef. Um, so um, at that point, they bring in a third, um, Pedersen. So they ended up six and three. And then I also want to mention the Kelterbaums. Now, the Kelterbaums, I think of them as the first family of magic. Most of you have never heard of them. Um, and th the truth is, none of them are spectacular players. What they are, first, first came into contact with them uh, 10 years ago now at Pro Tour Geneva. In those days, Pro Tours had a bunch of side events and they had some very uh, weird and wacky side events as well uh, and Morgan Kelterbaum who at that time was a tiny person um, I don't know exactly how old she would have been let's see 2007 she was probably 10 or 11 or 12 but she was very small um, and very clearly a little girl and she won this side event which was for a giant bar of Swiss chocolate We're in Geneva, remember, uh, a Toblerone bar. And this Toblerone bar, which was five feet tall, was about as tall as Morgan, who won it. Um, and there is a, a famous picture from this event of Morgan standing beside her Toblerone thing. Why do I do this in every show? Just very comforting. Anyway, uh, so that's Morgan. And then she has an older sister, and she has her dad, Richard, um, and they used to travel to a ton of European events together. And sometimes all three of them would play, and sometimes it would just be Morgan, who was very competitive and trying to get good, um, and dad. Um, and then uh, Big Sister would sometimes not come. And sometimes, as I say, you'd have all three of them, they'd play as a team. And then life changes as it does, different priorities. You go off to university, you go off to college, and, and so on. Richard, though, kept on coming. Um, and he's frequently to be seen at European events with a very nice camera in hand. He's a real documenter of the, the GP scene. And he plays, and he does okay. No GP top eights, but makes day two a bunch of the time, and that's a good benchmark for him. It's like, can I make day two at this one? Oh, I did. Great. And and if he doesn't, then he goes sees the city. Um, and those are his holidays. He has weekends away at Grand Prix. Anyway, haven't seen the three of them together for a long time, probably three, four years. Here they were, um, once again, six and three, so they made it through to day two, good job by them, um, and just great to see them, and you know, those are the stories that get lost. Um, the idea that there is a, a family there whose whole lives have been shaped around these little punctuation marks of going to Madrid and Stockholm and Rotterdam and Warsaw and and, and sort of getting a, a cultural smattering of all these great cities whilst playing Magic and hanging out as a family. Um, just great stuff. Um, so the Kelterbaums, um, just 
thought I'd tell you their story, really. Now, uh, Toby Henker, uh, who's our text writer uh, over in Madrid, uh, he wanted to see what debt diversity was like. So, start of day two, he looks at the top 10 tables, which sounds like 10 or 20, but is actually 60 players, because every table has three versus three. So he looks at 60 decks. How many different decks do you think there might have been? Well, there were 20. 20 is a lot of different decks, but it's not a lot for 60 players, right? From 60 players, you would think there might be a bit more diversity uh, than that. But the weird thing was that by the time we got to the top four, which only features 12 decks, well, we had 10 different decks there. So, yeah, modern continues to be incredibly diverse. Um, now, before I get to day two, I must point you in another direction. Uh, you may be aware of the Grafensteiner brothers, Toby and Daniel. Uh, and Christian Seibold. They play together as a three. They've done very well. They nearly made the top four in Lyon. They played for the top four in Lyon. They are the champions of Grand Prix Barcelona a couple of years ago. Are you aware of a film called Downfall? Downfall is a German language movie about the last days um, of Hitler in the bunker. Uh, and it's mostly told through the eyes of his secretary, if memory serves. I haven't seen it for a long time. It's very good, and I think the guy's name is Bruno Gantz, who plays Hitler. Um, and as I say, it's in German, which means if you watch it in English, you get subtitles. Uh, and very famously, uh, someone decided to... He, he, there is a huge three-minute set-piece monologue rant uh, by by Hitler in the bunker where all his generals are lined up round round the room and he's you know gesticulating wildly at the map and it's basically high fantasy because you know he's talking about how he wants them to retake the world in the next 10 days and all this kind of stuff uh, and the performance is so outstanding. This has become an internet meme, um, which many of you will have seen the magic version of, which is all about blue players playing counter spells. Um, and it's it's pretty funny, not going to lie. So it turns out that, <laughs> yes, one of the Gravensteiner brothers and Christian Seibold got busy after they failed to make day two. And they created something rather similar. It doesn't use the downfall footage, which is actually to its credit because it makes it much more entertaining. I don't even know where they dug this up, but this is some 1970s German language chat show where both the host and the guest, neither of whom I know, are just basically giggling uncontrollably about the stupidity of life. Well, it turns out that there was quite a lot of stupidity going on in the team of Gravensteiner, Gravensteiner and Seibold. And I heartily recommend uh, that you take the time to Google GP Madrid Team Unified Modern on YouTube. And you will arrive at three very, very surreal minutes. Uh, and it will be a long time before you look at Thoughtseize the same way again. That's all I'm saying.
is outstanding. So on we go to uh, day two of Madrid. So how did uh, how did the sort of competitive lot uh, end up? Well, Ramirez Cano, uh, Ramiro Cano's. Let's try that again. Ramiro Cano, Tagores, and Ortiz Ross went twelve one and one, and that was enough for the top four. Beesman's Van Doyen and Brands were 11-1-2, so their two draws, not a problem. They just kept on winning, got four wins and then a draw. Uh, Diego Cifuentes and Salvato, 11-1-2, so they picked up another draw along the way and that got them in. And then Heuser, Hauk and Yang, 11-2-1. There were two other teams on 11-2-1 who therefore missed out because it was only cut to the top four. Amon Dossimo, Grand Prix champion, was with LeBron and Berteau, 11-2-1, miss out. And then Severin, Grimmer and Roush, who'd been in contention, uh, they missed out on tie rakes 11-2-1 as well. The best of the 11-3s was Deltor, Lagarde and Fortier. Uh, and then there were a whole bunch of teams just sort of winding down the 11-3s. Um, Dominic Gertsen finished 16th with his teammates Linden and LeBron. Simon Gertsen finished 19th with Florian Koch and Andreas Gantz, both Grand Prix champions. So, all in all, not bad at all. Uh, and a decent top four, although not by any means star-stacked. You would say that almost certainly Luis Salvato was the best known of the 12. Um, you would say that you know the only other player in there with uh, a top eight at the PT uh, was Christian Hauk, and that was very recent. So I thought I'd have a little dig and find out what I could about them from the top eight profiles, top four profiles. Uh, so first of all, Xiaoliang Yang, his claim to fame, he'd won an FNM, one of the ironic laid back, yeah, I won an FNM once kind of guys. He was playing Jess guy. Marius Heuser, the significance for him was that he locked bronze which is the new tier, um, and it's a good start. Right? It, it gets you on the path to proness. He was playing Absan. As for Christian Hauk, already with a Pro Tour Top 8 this season, remember, this Top 8 locked him for gold. That's a huge deal. That means, yes, I'm going to be back at all the Pro Tours. Fantastic. He was playing Urzatron. I'm going to talk more about Tron when we get to Oklahoma City. Um, the Argentinians and Peruvian team Okay, there was some weird stuff going on here. Unless, of course, it's just true. Pedro de Diego says, this is my best result ever. Back to the Pro Tour. He was playing Lantern Control. Francisco Cifuentes um, playing Titan Breach. Occupation. Chicken businessman. Let's think about that for a moment. What is a chicken businessman? Is it someone who owns a KFC? Is it someone who deals in eggs? Is it someone who has three hens in their back garden? Is it a businessman made of chicken? Is it a chicken who is a businessman? I think we'd have noticed if it was a chicken playing in the top four, but yeah. So, that seemed a bit strange. And then Luis Salvato put for occupation, MTG pro player, and still chicken businessman. 
investigative journalism will get to the bottom of this, I assure you. And next year, when we talk more on Hipsters of the Coast on Talking Points, I will find out what chicken businessman is all about. Winner, winner, chicken businessman, as the saying doesn't go. Salvato, by the way, was on Elves. So uh, then we got on to the team of Voda Beesman's, Luca Van Doyne and Casper Brands. Uh, Voda Beesman's says, it also means I will buy my girlfriend the ring that I promised her if I'd ever top eighted. Now, some of you may instantly be leaping to a world of engagement and marriage, but you never know with magic players. Um, so it could be a ring of gicks, for example. It could be an Aladdin's ring. It could be a hula hoop to place on her finger. Barbecue beef, probably. So even if it's a ring, ring, like, you know, a ring, still no guarantee that it's going to be a ring, ring. So I'm interested to see what that turns out to mean. More investigative journalism required. White Blue Control was his deck. Uh, Luca Van Doyen, more straightforward. What does it mean? Making a Grand Prix top eight and qualifying for the Pro Tour were two dreams of mine. He was playing Grix's Shadow. Uh, and then Casper Brands. As a student, the prize money comes in very handy. That's true. But most of all, being able to go to the Pro Tour with my friends is super awesome. And he was playing a collective company deck. Um, so yeah, I think we forget sometimes because obviously the top top eight or top four is the centre of our tournament. For so many players, it's the reaching the top eight that is everything, right? That is just everything. Because the Pro Tour is, is where it's at. That's what people are trying to qualify for. You get into the top eight of the GP. If you lose in the quarterfinals, no one remembers. If you lose in the semifinals, nobody remembers. If you lose the final and the final's good, people like me sometimes remember. But by and large, it's seven of you made the top eight and somebody won. And it's the somebody won that matters. Um, but for all the people getting into the top eight, it is literally a PTQ final to get in. And that's why you often find Grand Prix top eights these days particularly are so relaxed. A few years ago, you had to win your quarterfinal. It was only the top four, depending on the size of the GP. It's only the top four that made it in to the Pro Tour. And that was savage because you made it into the top eight. It was like, yes, I made the top eight. But it didn't matter because if you lost the quarterfinal, you were done. You finished sixth and didn't get on the Pro Tour. Utter daggers. Now, thankfully, the whole top eight qualifies. So you, you get that deep breath moment of, I made it. I'm in. Yay! And then you settle in to hopefully win some bonus magic and some cash and take a trophy home. But it does take the pressure off when you're not playing to get on the Pro Tour. Final team in the top four. Uh, Adrian Romericano, he was playing Vizera Remedies Collected Company because he says it's the best deck in the format. I don't have a view about that. Rodrigo Tagores, um, I won Grand Prix Prague in the best Grand Prix Legacy Finals ever. Huh. Okay. He was playing Titan Shift. Uh, and then Christian Ortiz Ross said, I couldn't play Living End, so I had to learn Storm. 
That is quite impressive. If you are a living end player, and, and both his teammates actually talked about that and said, this is a guy who plays living end all the time and that's what he knows. That's his comfort zone. So presumably this was the, the rules of modern, meaning they just had cards that didn't overlap very nicely. Um, so he had to learn Storm. So in the end, um, where we got to was... Adrian Romericano and Rodrigo Tagores and Christian Ortiz Ross taking on the two Argentinians and Francisco Cifuentes, the Peruvian captain. Now, I meant, already talked about the Argentine Peru team, but Francisco Cifuentes, that's the first Peruvian in the top eight of a Grand Prix. Great job. That's fantastic. A little bit of magic history. Won't mean much to lots of you. But if you're in Peru, you've now got a Grand Prix Top 8 You're no longer on a zero on the wiki page that lists all the Grand Prix Top 8s. That's fantastic. So well done. End of the line, though, came in the final. Um, it was really, really close. Apparently it was a very, very good final, which will make more people upset that we didn't record it. And it was Pedro de Diego with Lantern Control in the last match, but he couldn't quite get there. Um, and so... Tagores, Cano and Ross are your champions of Grand Prix Madrid. Fantastic work. So well done to them. And I just mentioned Lantern being in the final uh, of Madrid. And that brings us rather neatly um, to Oklahoma City. Now, uh, if you watched the show last week, which of course you did, um, you may have heard me mention the possibility of setting up a little bit of a troll. Hmm. Yes. Well, that worked better than I could possibly have imagined. On the Friday, um, I, I went to the, the main stage and I just said, look, can I borrow the microphone? Because there was no way I was just going to find lantern players randomly floating about. So I just took the microphone and I said, ladies and gentlemen, as we all know, lantern control is the very best deck in modern and also beloved by every righteous magic player. If you are playing Lantern Control in the main event tomorrow, and are willing to admit to it, please join me in the feature match area where I need two volunteers. Yes. Oh yes. Well, I got five volunteers inside about a minute and a half. I ended up with two great guys. I explained the concept to them. I was creating Lantern Hell uh, for the audience at home. And they thought this was splendid. Remember, all Lantern Control players do fundamentally like to torture people in the best possible consensual way. Uh, and so they thought this was great. So we set them up with no wins, no losses and 13 draws. Because as we know, Lantern has never actually won a game of anything ever. Anyway, uh, did that, set it up as an exhibition match, record it. They played one game, took about 35 minutes. The Lantern Mirror is not especially exciting, it's fair to say. Quite a lot of dead cards. But between you and me, the, the game itself was actually kind of okay. It wouldn't have lasted 35 minutes if I hadn't asked them to keep on playing. Uh, the first life change was at about 20 minutes in. Uh, we never got that far on the stream. Oh, well, never mind. Uh, but when Saturday morning came around, I duly went on for my pregame. And 
I started showing this at one third of the speed. Now, a lot of people got the joke and thought that this was fantastically entertaining and silly and fun. Uh, it is true, however, that several people were really cross with me. Oh, yes. Right. This is this is a disgrace. Um, I can't find the actual tweet right now, but someone said, this is a disgrace. Um, you're mocking people for their deck choice. It's a perfectly fine choice. Uh, would you would you make a piece with two burn players uh, pretending to be zombies and going, ah, oh, face, burn, smash, blah, 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 blah. burn you, burn you, burn you. You wouldn't, would you? Thanks for the idea. That's a great plan. Maybe we'll do that another time. So anyway, we showed Lantern at a third of the speed. It is everything you could have hoped and more. It's right at the start of the stream. So if you want to check it out, feel free. Um, we showed a little bit again later. And yes, it was, it was a thing. Um, and I will certainly bear in mind that burn zombies burn thing most importantly um under the heading it's a christmas miracle i think i'm going to save the footage and try and wheel it out at about this festive time every year so that eventually it will achieve sort of christmas carol status it'll be dickensian maybe i'll turn it into black and white and just we'll watch it back um so uh yes all in all very happy with the lantern thing that we talked about on the show last week. Now regarding lantern itself, this was super interesting. Lantern, yeah I know, I put super interesting and lantern in the same sentence. Excuse me, I have to wash my mouth out. So look, I genuinely like lantern control as a thing. I like that it exists. I genuinely like that people play it with a skill set that demands a very rigorous understanding of the format because how are you going to know whether to get rid of the card that's on the top of their library all the time? Uh, I certainly couldn't play Lantern Control. Maybe I could after I've watched Eduardo Sanchez for a month, but not right now. I'd be terrible at it. So I think it's a very, very skillful deck. I totally understand how frustrating it is once you've lost to know that you've lost. The manner in which you lose is very disconcerting and very uh, unempowering. Um, that's not quite the word, but uh, it's miserable to lose to once you've lost. And knowing where you have actually lost rather than when you're struggling is a lot of the skill in playing against it, as far as I can see. What's interesting is that it went from a niche deck, apparently, that very few people would play or could play or wanted to play, to suddenly seeming like it was everywhere. I say I've got five volunteers at three o'clock on Friday afternoon amongst people who were not at that point playing in a trial or drafting and felt like they had some time spare. Five lantern decks. And that's in a very small room. It was not busy on Friday afternoon. So that gave us a clue. And then it did seem to be everywhere, particularly on, on day one. Now, we have a Pro Tour coming up in February. 
in modern. And I can't think of a deck that more pros would want to be good than something like Lantern. Pros love to control because, well, when you're in control, things don't go wrong. Um, it's It's got a ton of play to it, it, by which we mean if you know what your opponent is doing, you have your best chance of beating them. It's very skillful. Um, there's lots of lots of choices you can make, particularly against less experienced people, which half the pro tour is. Feels to me like Lantern could be a really big thing at the pro tour in Bilbao. Proto Rivals of Ixalan, because you have to assume, just because it's modern, that Rivals of Ixalan itself will not hugely shake up modern. Now, of course, it does only take one fantastic card that spawns a whole archetype that slots into the modern metagame to radically change modern. But it's not that often that a set, and this is the last small set, as it were, this is the end of the Rivals block, um, the Ixalan block. If I was gambling, I would say it is unlikely that modern is going to churn radically because of rivals of Ixalan. And if that's true, then seeing the lantern decks here is simultaneously great news for pros, but also a bit scary because ah, everyone knows about this now. So what do we do? What where where do where do we go from here? As Buffy once said. Uh, I think this is I think this is a tough one. So Lantern to me right now is it's hard to say that there are pillars of the format because there are so many decks dotted around. Eduardo Sanchez, 30 decks, 30 days, did I mention? I think I did. That's enough now. No more no no more advertising for you, Eduardo. We're done. Um but uh it just seems to me that modern is currently defined by Lantern. Lantern seems to sit at the centre of the format. Not what I expected to be saying. So, anyway, uh, let's get to it. People with three buys, how do they do? Brandon Ayres started off 7-2 and two overnight, finished 11-3-1, top 32. That's pretty good. Corey Baumeister, 6-3 on day one, disappointing, turned it round, 11-4 day two, but 68th, not good enough for points that are going to count at the end of the season. Um, several people couldn't make it. Uh, weather was really bad. Um, so no BBD, no Paul Dean, uh, no Mike Sigrist, no Ben Stark. East Coast really struggled to get across um, to Oklahoma City. Though, uh, as I may have mentioned, several people told me that uh, no one would ever have wanted to. Uh, so, anyway, there it is. Uh, so, no BBD, no Paul Dean. Ben Friedman, 7-2 and two overnight, turned it into 11-4 and top 50. Now, thing here is, I want to talk about something mildly controversial. Uh, as you may know, uh, Travis Wu got suspended for a year. Uh, during the past week and 
Ben Friedman came out and wrote a lengthy um, piece um, about how he, I want to choose my words carefully, because supported implies believed Travis was right about everything, which is not what Ben said. Basically, what he decided to do was say, I am a friend of a person. And this person is someone I like. And this is someone I think I understand pretty well. And they are obviously having a hard time at the moment because they've just been banned for a year, which is not great when magic is, you know, a, a part of the, the livelihood and whatever. Uh, and so... I thought Ben wrote a really thoughtful piece and a pretty sensitive piece. And most important of all, I think he decided not to be a politician, not to hide, not to stupidly proclaim that everything my friend does is perfect because my friend's perfect. But instead he went, I have a friend. This is my friend. He is my friend. He's going to continue to be my friend. Um, and I think that's cool. I disagree with quite a lot of what he said. And I certainly disagree with quite a lot of things that Travis has said. But that doesn't alter the fact that if you are friends with someone, even if you understand that they have some very difficult flaws, um, that can get them and others into trouble. You can still be their friend. Um, so I admire Ben Friedman for putting his head above the parapet, not in support of an issue or a philosophy, but for coming out and saying, I feel bad for my friend. So well done, Ben. He finished 11 for uh, 50th place. I relax, uh, put up. Uh, one of those hopeful, optimistic tweets at six and three, uh, but that turned into a nine and six, didn't go very far. Scott Lip, a champion from Grand Prix Sydney last year, six and three, better day two, but not by much, 10 and five, 166. Seth Manfield, number one player in the world, playing Black Green Tron, eight and one on day one, turned that into 12, one and two, and the top eight. And the thing is, Boy, was he ever patient, right? He was he was properly patient um, because he went from eight and one to nine and one and then ten and one. And then he started drawing, played uh, Julian John, uh, who would go on to make the top eight as well. And he got a draw out of that. And then he got another draw and then he got a loss. And it was suddenly it was like, Ah, wheels are falling off. No. Eventually made it in at 12-1-2. And, and his unflustered unflappability was great to see. Now, also great to see. Seth came in. Uh, we do um, time warp with the pros sometimes. So I watch the, the time warp match. Uh, and then we bring someone in um, who then um, talks with me on air they've watched a different match uh, they've played their own match on table two so they haven't seen what's gone on in the time warp match but i have some idea of what's happened um and because i was there 
uh, and we kind of hang out. We sort of part do chat show. It's partly about them. We talk a bit before the game. Then we watch some magic. And rather than being about the play-by-play, turn-by-turn, what's actually happening, it's more um, we, we try to... We try to be a bit more chatty and a bit more general and to get some lessons. I felt, um, if you haven't had a chance to, to watch it, um, I love those interviews always anyway. I love doing them because I love people. People are endlessly fascinating to me. But we had Corey Burkhart in, we had Steve Rubin in, and we had Seth Manfield in. And all three of them, each in unique ways, were outstanding. They were great. They brought so much insight to the topics we were talking about, found out some more about them on a personal level um, and understand what makes them tick. But also they were just so, so straightforwardly knowledgeable about the format. And in particular, I think about Steve Rubin, who uh, came in to talk about all the decks that were in the top four of Madrid. We hadn't rehearsed that. I just said, Steve, I'd like to get your sense of what you think these team lineups look like, the squads. And he talked so powerfully and persuasively and intelligently um, about the lineups and made a bunch of points that I certainly wouldn't have spotted or thought of. Um, and yeah, I, I just thought that we had a really great trio um, of, of interviews and they're all a credit to the game. Um, in their own way. Corey Burkhart, Steve Rubin and uh, Seth Manford. You'll see plenty more of those interviews uh, next year on coverage, but I thought they were all great. So Seth makes the top eight. Uh, Matt Nass uh, didn't get out of day one. He was five and four. Greg Orange, seven and two, became ten, four and one. So a winning record, but not by much on day two. Top 100 for him. Sam Pardy, number 12 ranked in the world. He began seven and two, but couldn't kick on. Went four and two the next day. Um, but that's, uh, with his buys, a pair of four and twos. Good enough for top 34, but eh. Um, Steve Rubin, eight and one, turned that into 12 and three. He just ran out of room, uh, finished 13th uh, in the end. So good weekend for Rubin, but not quite as good as it might have been. Um, Matt Severa was seven and two. He finished 10 and five, which is a disappointment because he was decently positioned. Um, Nathan Smith, meanwhile, he was seven and two overnight and mired in the pack. We had 1,400 players, which isn't huge by any means, um, but it was plenty enough to mean that the seven and twos weren't going to come into view, really, for at least five rounds. Well, that's how many rounds it took Nathan Swift to win five rounds. Eight, two, nine, two, 10, two, 11, two, 12, two, gold pro. Um, and then he wins his top eight match uh, to get to 13 and two. That puts him in. So fantastic job by him. Um, solid day one brilliant day two. So all of those players had three buys. What about uh, a few players with two? Brandon Burton, um, Sandy Dog on Magic Online, um, basically the, the number one um, player with um, Burn in modern. I mean, basically he always plays some form of Burn. Uh, Burn was not well positioned for him. He went 5-4. Eric Froelich, meanwhile, was 8-1. Um, overnight with Burn, didn't get there um, in the end. Again, just ran out of rounds, um, but nonetheless, good showing for for Efro. Pat Cox six and three turned into ten and five. Um, Hybing who 
six and three, but then nothing on day two. Uh, Matthias Hunt, five and four, so he was out. Uh, Stephen Neal also didn't make it through. Um, Yuji Takahashi, a couple of Japanese players. Yuji Takahashi, six and three. He went to 11 and four, top 100. So a 5-1 day two for him. Yoshiko Ikawa, seven and two, 11 and four, top 60 um, for him. Uh, nice to see both of them uh, there. Um, Yuji Takahashi now heads on to Singapore next weekend. Marcelangelo Zafra was eight and one. He played Brian Kibler for top eight um, of the Pro Tour Austin in 2009 that Kibler would eventually go on to win. Eight and one overnight for Zafra. Horrible day. On day two, 10 and five, 101st. Also eight and one overnight, Andy Solano uh, turned eight and one into 10 and five, 103rd. Another disappointment. Um, but then, Zach Elsick. Now, Elsick was the reigning Oklahoma City champion. He was 9-0 and um, at the end of day one. And you would have thought, yeah, he, he's in. It's like Lantern Control, unbeatable. He's playing Lantern. He's just doing everything he, he could. Um, outstanding. Didn't make the top eight. Not even close. Had a, a, pretty, a pretty wretched uh, day two. Now, Five players had perfect records at the end of day one. How did they do? I'm glad you asked. So Zach ends up with 10 wins, one draw, and four losses. 10-4-1 from 9-0. and He only won once on day two. Urgh. Similarly grim, Nathanael Perigo, who was 9-0, 10-5. So 1-5 for him. So between them... Two wins, one draw, nine losses. Urgh, terrible. Uh, slightly better for Josh Hoffeld, nine and zero into eleven and four, but still two and four on the day, thirty third overall. That's not good. That's not good at all. Oh dear. Did anyone make it in? Well, yes. Julian John, twelve one and two. Now he had had that draw with Seth Manfield earlier in the piece. Uh, and by the time he'd won going into the last round, he was able to ID because he'd been right up at the top, obviously, from 9-0. So his tie breaks, he knew that was going to uh, stand up. So he ID'd on table two uh, for that one. And then Patrick Tierney, quietly, no one was really paying him any attention with his Jeskai breach deck. And he was very close to perfection. He finished 14 wins, no losses, one draw. Going into the top eight. It's obviously fantastic. So, of the five, only two made it in. That's not what you expect. And you would expect probably you know, at least three. And the, the Zach Elsick and, uh, and Perigo just demolished uh, on day two. And so, we reached our top eight. And the thing here was that, weirdly, we'd got rid of all the lantern. I think in part because of, of the thing that we'd done on the stream with the playing it at third speed and whatever people were extra twitchy about it. Um, and like, why are you showing lantern? Why are you showing this? Why are you doing? Um, I, I had a, a, a proper kerfuffle with, with a viewer, um, who was complaining bitterly that all we seemed to be showing was storm and Tron. Um, and, uh, we had the black green Tron Seth Manfield against 
uh, Mono Green Tron uh, with Julian John in the penultimate round, I guess it was. Yeah, round 14. Uh, and he said, we've seen these decks before. Why, why, why are they on? And I don't... I don't understand how you can sort of view things that way. I, un I understand what the argument is. The argument is, modern is diverse, you should show lots of different decks. I agree, it is diverse, we should show lots of different decks. But we've just shown 13 rounds of the tournament and up to four feature matches every round, indeed up to five feature matches every round, because some rounds on day one were so fast, dear lord, we hit a run of three rounds in a row where we could not buy a third game anywhere. It was just 2-0, two 2-0, nil, 2-0, two nil, two nil, two nil, 20 minutes, everyone's done. No! Ugh, nightmare. But anyway, back back to the story. Um, you've got a world champion, reigning Pro Tour champion, world-ranked number one, Seth Manfield, playing for the top eight in round 14, literally, by the way, the only table that was playing to get into the top eight that round. No one else could make the top eight with a win. And the argument is, you should be shown one of the decks that's different. Haven't seen any burn, haven't seen any of this, haven't seen any of that. We are tournament coverage. And the tournament is in the business of being won when you get to the last few rounds of Swiss. Now, next year, one of the things we're going to try and do is, uh, for people who do love deck wackiness, and, I, and this person wasn't looking for wackiness, just wanted you know, some variety, or as much variety as we could. Um, one thing we're going to try and do is show you uh, lots of original decks on Sunday morning. Why Sunday morning? Well, a couple of things. First of all, that's the point at which uh, decks are still alive and maybe haven't been buried by playing the top two or three archetypes over and over because they're not quite there. So, you know, an Allies deck or a Goblins deck or whatever it turns out to be. Uh, and also, because we go off air on Saturday night, we get a chance to look and see, all right, what are the coolest decks we can find that we can showcase on Sunday morning? Because nobody ever won a GP on Sunday morning. People lose GPs on Sunday morning by getting their third loss. That's what Sunday morning's about. It's about finding out who's left after 12 rounds, right? If you like, the first draft pod of Sunday morning is just eliminating people with their third loss. So that's a great time to show the weird and the wacky and the cool and the innovative and the fun. Round 14, with the reigning Pro Tour champion trying to make the top eight, that is not a time to be going, I wonder if there's a Bogles list somewhere I can find for our main match. No. Incidentally, you don't have to say Bogles in that voice. That's, yeah. Anyway, uh, we move on, as did Seth, as did uh, Julian John. And, as luck would have it, they were paired in the top eight against each other. So it was Manfield against John with... Black Green Tron against Mono Green Tron. Uh, 
Patrick Tierney, the 14-0-1 guy, was with his Jeskai Breach deck uh, against normal Scapeshift with Larry Lee. Um, Adam Pannone had Titan Shift against Raymond Detivo's Living End. More on that in a minute. And then Nathan Smith with Dredge was up against Michael Byers with Mono Green Tron. So, basically, this was about Seth Manfield 1 and Nathan Smith 2. They were the big names in the top 8 and a lot of inexperience uh, around them. So, I guess we can't put off any longer the thing that happened in the top 8. Which, as usual, I've not rehearsed what I'm going to say, so we'll just see what I think about it as I'm talking to you about it. So, what happens is Larry Lee beats Patrick Tierney um, in the quarterfinals. Seth Manfield, having drawn with Julian John in round 14, finishes the job in the quarterfinals and advances. Uh, and then Nathan Smith, with Dredge, comes back from 1-0 down to beat Michael Byers. And that leaves Adam Pannone against Raymond Detivo. So, um, choosing my words carefully because what actually happened is important. Uh, so, the first thing you need to know is that in the semi-final, Adam Pannone with Titan Shift went on to play Nathan Smith. So the winner of the match, officially, was Adam Pannone with Titan Shift. I have a friend who hates the fact that magic is a game played by people. And what I mean by that is that he considers the game, the, the game itself, the entity... To be so glorious and so perfect in design that he hates when humans get in the way of the game. And sometimes that's, you know, miscasting something. Sometimes that's missing a trigger. Sometimes that's just forgetting altogether that it does creatures and players and that they themselves are on three and so they're going to die. Um, he would like a world, and he knows it doesn't exist and probably never can, in which every card and every turn and every deck is played perfectly. It's a, 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 a platonic ideal of the game. It's the idea that Fatal Push will always kill the most appropriate creature. Um, that Lightning Bolt will only go to the face at exactly the right time and right circumstance. And of course, the reality is that magic is so complicated that we all make mistakes all the time. And indeed, something that was super interesting to me at Worlds um, is that when Javier Dominguez made what Marcio Carvalho thought was a, a big mistake to, to end the match, um, there was a sense of William Jensen had made the least mistakes. And, of course, the better magic gets um, as a 
as a game, as a community, the more mistakes will become critical and fewer and smaller, which is why the pro edge is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And as someone who's been playing for 20 years uh, and played a lot of my early magic against players who were going to their monthly tournament locally as the one time in the month they would touch their deck and would see nothing online in between, uh, that six rounds that they played where they went two and four or one and five was the only place that they could learn what their deck did or didn't do. And so if you knew the rules, and I'm not talking about rules lawyering, I'm just talking about understanding how the game worked, you had an enormous edge over people. Gigantic. Even things like a card called Prodigal Sorcerer. Tap, deal one damage to target creature or player. Well, that's an instant ability, which means you can do it at the end of your opponent's turn. In 1997, any number of people only ever used that at sorcery speed. They go, my main phase one, tap prodigal sorcerer, deal you one. Ha ha. So the edges were enormous. But the fact remains that magic is a game of mistakes. It's always been a game of mistakes, and I think it always will be. It's just the line of what a mistake is changes. So the scenario. Adam Pannon is going off with Titan Shift. Uh, he has Raymond Dedevo in his sights and is going to resolve Escape Shift. So the commentators, who were Ben Seck and Jacob Van Lunen, I thought did a fantastic job, I would say that, but I think they did a fantastic job of being clear with the viewer what they thought could happen. Because the first thing that happened was that Raymond Dedevo wasn't conceding, which seemed odd because he couldn't counter the scapeshift. So they surmised uh, that maybe he had a way to get rid of one of the lands. Maybe something like Beast Within. If that was true, they worked out together. This Valakut that needs to see a certain number of mountains wouldn't see that certain number of mountains anymore. They'd see a beast within instead. So, they believe that Raymond Detivo is going to cast Beast Within. And then, although the first Valakut will trigger... All the rest will go, how many mountains? Ah, uh, not enough. Oh, okay. And at that point, basically, Detavo with his living end deck, will go on to win. He had a ton on the board. So, our commentators believe Detavo is going to win. Next thing that happens is that Detavo leaves the table, which means he's going to talk to a judge. Or indeed, judges. Now one of the reasons that head judge doesn't get involved to start with is so that he's there as a backup or she as a backup to the judge that's giving a ruling so that they can step in and say 
uh, and to clarify, da da da, or sorry, that's not correct, even. So the conversation between Raymond Detavo and a judge uh, was quite lengthy. And of course, Chat, who loves a good drama, decides to get involved, as, as you should, uh, and work out, okay, so what's he asking? And this is where things become very difficult. Because judges are not coaches. Judges are not there to tell you how to achieve the things you want to achieve. So if I say to a judge, Judge, I think I'm about to take 18 and I'm on 18 life. Is there a way for me not to do that using Beast Within? They're not going to answer that, nor should they. Of course not. That's just strategic help. I've given you a silly example of, of a question, but I hope you can see you can't answer that as a judge. If they say, Judge, I've got a beast within. If I cast it, what will happen? See, that's really hard, isn't it? Because the answer is, well, read your beast within. Tells you what will happen. But of course, you don't want to know what does beast within do. You wish to know what the impact of Beast Within will have on the game that is currently taking place. But all of that information is derivable. It's got nothing to do with the judge. That's derivable from your card Beast Within and their card Valak at the Molten Pinnacle. It says right there on the card. It, then if you have six or more mountains, deal three damage. And you could ask, I suppose, Judge, I'm going to cast Beast Within. Uh, how many mountains will my opponent have once I have successfully resolved Beast Within? It all gets super messy. Now, after they've been talking for a while, I must confess, I went and stood near this conversation. And what is certainly true is that in that conversation, the judge pointed out that Valakut would check on resolution whether there were six mountains. So at this point, it looks certain that Raymond Dedevo will win because he will go back to the table, he will cast his beast within, the Valakut triggers will trigger and go, aha, let's deal you three damage. And then all the resolutions will happen. And in only one case will that work. And everything will, almost everything will fizzle. And then all the living end creatures will attack next turn. And that will be that. And Raymond Dedevo will win. So what happens is, somehow, Raymond Dedevo convinces himself that 
he's lost. That he has this beast within that, yes, he will get to destroy. And yes, Valakut will still trigger. Which is true. Valakut does still trigger. Um, but that, unfortunately, it will not stop the Valakut piling in and taking taking care of the game. So what we see on the coverage is Raymond Detivo cast the beast within, and then we see a handshake. So we, knowing, if you like, the platonic ideal of what magic is supposed to do and what the cards actually do, and the commentators have correctly worked out that the outcome of this beast within is functionally match to living end. We wrap it up. We go, thanks so much. So there we go. Raymond, um, Adam Bohan, um goes down to Raymond Dedevo with living end. We'll see living end in the semifinals. And we go to a break. But I can tell something's not right. So I race round. I'm like, who won? And they go, it's Titan Shift. At this point, I'm horrified. Not only have we said on the stream that Raymond Dedevo won, which is now factually inaccurate, but the only thing I can think of is that our commentators have been wrong this entire time about how all this interaction works and that Valakut's actually just dealt 18 and we're going to have to apologise for not knowing the interaction, which does happen. It's not the world's worst thing in the world. There's lots of complicated interactions in Magic, but it's not a great look. Um, and then someone says, no. Dedevo showed the beast within, cast it, and then said, I guess you've got me anyway, or words to that effect. Well done. Good luck in the semi-finals. Hands out. Handshake. And so Ray Dedevo conceded to Adam Pannone. Now, I wasn't there when this happened, but from everything I hear, there was no suggestion that Adam Pannone did anything wrong at all. Uh, he didn't game the system. He didn't didn't do anything. He, he just sat there while his opponent conceded. And for me, I understand if you feel that Magic should be a game where the cards are honoured in such a way that you just say, oh, no, 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 that's not how that works. That beast, must, that beast within is going to kill me, and you've done very well, and no, you go to the semi-final. I understand if you think that's what uh, Panone should have done, uh, and maybe I'd have done that if I was ever lucky enough to be in that situation, but I certainly don't think you can blame Panone for just going, what? not least, I think the chances are he had no understanding of what just happened. Assuming that he knew the interaction, he knew he was going to lose two beasts within. He would have felt utterly sick at that moment. He's cast his Valakut. He's going to go for it. He's going to win. Oh, no, he isn't, because here comes beasts within. Oh, and now you're telling me I've won? Unreal. 
So, we're still in the ad break. I go and talk to Ray Dedimo. Poor guy is in bits. He's made the top eight. Fantastic. He's going to the Pro Tour. Fantastic. But he literally won a game that he then conceded. Because he had misunderstood, having asked judges for rulings. And of course he had an adrenaline dump and was was just taken apart by it. So, congratulations to Ray Detivo, um for, as I say, making the top eight, for going to the Pro Tour. And huge commiserations because that's a terrible way to lose. And to Adam Pannone, well done for making it into the top four um, in extraordinary circumstances. Magic is a game of mistakes. Um, and obviously chat was OMG. And for a long time afterwards, everyone kept coming back and going, wait, where's the living end in the semi-finals? Because living end won. I know they won because I watched him win and you told us he'd won. Where is he? So that fire went on for quite a long time. In the end, though, Pannone advanced. Um, and then in the semi-finals, got past Nathan Smith. And that set up a final against Larry Lee. So Lee was on scape shift. Pannone was on Titan shift. And all of a sudden, in a kind of look over there um, way, a weekend that had looked like it had started out as a lantern control weekend in so many ways with the Zach Elsick 9-0 and the lantern thing at the start of the weekend and being in the final of Madrid um, and people talking about it as being one of the best decks in the format and certainly central to the format. And then we end up with two scapeshift decks in the final going at each other. Um, and it felt like, felt like we'd been conned a little bit. Like, hang on, where did, where did scapeshift suddenly come from again to just be both finalists? That's absurd. Stop it. Um, in the end, Larry Lee wins. Fantastic job for him. First Grand Prix title for him. Pannone, brilliant run. Uh, two rounds further than he had a right to, if you like, um, after that quarterfinal um, miracle win. And so now we turn our attention. Modern is very much in our focus because we're in the middle of December now. Um, we're, we've got one more weekend of New Jersey and Singapore, back to standard. Then it's Christmas week. Then it's New Year week. Then it's January featuring team trios in Santa Clara, which I can't wait for. That's one legacy deck, one modern deck, one standard deck. That's going to be so, so exciting um, to see. Um, but then it's only a month till the first weekend in February, and that's Pro Tour Rivals of Ixland, which is all modern all the time, apart from the Rivals drafts, of course, on Friday and Saturday morning, but the constructor format is all modern. So where does this leave us for modern? You, can you still play absolutely anything? Well, yes, you can, but 
what seems to me most interesting, and this is not my original thought, this is from listening to people, particularly on Sunday, is that because Lantern had a big showing, was very visible, literally, that changes people's ability to play it. Because Lantern is a deck that has a lot of artefacts. And if there's one thing that modern can do, it's blow up artifacts. And it's not a team event in Bilbao. So if you want to put in four ancient grudges and four stony silence into some red white deck, you can. Um, there's a lot of ways to blow artifacts up. And without your artifacts, you're not really doing very much in Lantern. So Back to the drawing board team pros as we head towards uh, that. Big winner of the weekend was Seth Manfield. Um, lost in the semi-final to the eventual winner. But another Grand Prix top eight really on top of his game. Super good. Great to have him in the booth with us. Um, I, thought, I thought it was a really solid weekend of what is my favourite format. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it too um, in Oklahoma City. Um, and as I said, we move on to New Jersey and Singapore next. Um, but this is going to do it for uh, this week and indeed um, for the next few weeks, because as I may have mentioned, there are some seasonal things coming up, Christmas and New Year. And then 2018 starts. And it turns out that in 2018, I am going to be a little bit busy. Oh, yes. So just to um, give you a, a sense of, of what's going on. Um, next year, the things that we're proposing to cover are Santa Clara Team Trios in January, Indianapolis, which will be Team Limited, uh, London, which will be Individual Limited with Rivals of Ixalan. Uh, Indianapolis will be Rivals of Ixalan as well. Uh, Toronto, which will be modern. Leon, which will be modern a week later. Memphis, which is standard the week after that. Uh, then we take a week off. In March, we go to Madrid uh, for Team Trios. Um, then we've got the first of our uh, triple day uh, GPs. That's Seattle in April. Legacy and standard for that. Then it's Hartford for modern. Uh, then we go to Bologna a couple of weeks after that for Team Limited in the EU. Um, then it's regular limited at Dallas. Then a three-day event, Legacy and Standard in Birmingham, um, my home country. Uh, then we get a week off for good behavior. Then we go to Washington, D.C. for Team Limited, a week ahead of the Pro Tour. Uh, then it's Copenhagen with Standard. A week after that, it's another three days in Las Vegas. Then it's Pittsburgh, somewhere in there. Maybe we'll get to U.S. Nationals. Maybe we'll get to Japanese Nationals. That's just the front half of the year. It's going to be chaos. Someone said to me, um, went on Twitter and said, I hope to get to an event with Rich Hagen at it. My friend, that will not prove tricky since I'm basically at everything um, is what it feels like. Um, so going to be a fantastic 2018. Um, I want to thank uh, my good friends, Rich Stein and uh, the boys and girls at Hipsters of the Coast um, for giving me this opportunity to share um, the last six weeks with you. Um, hopefully we'll be back in the new year with more um, talking points or talking points um, or talking points. Yeah, yeah, yeah that thing. Um, and um, it's been great. So 
um, with the news that Larry Lee um, wins um, in Oklahoma City and uh, that the the Argentinian Peruvian contingent got as far as the final. But in the end, it was Spain that took down the title in Madrid, which has a certain symmetry to it. I think we can agree. Uh, I will love you and leave you. Um, say happy Christmas, happy new year, uh, peace and uh, goodwill to all um, men, women and everyone in between. Uh, and uh, we'll see you again very, very soon here on Talking Points or Talking Points. If you enjoy Talking Points, make sure to check out The Magic Minute, a daily magic news show from Hipsters of the Coast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Google Play, or watch the video version on YouTube at youtube.com slash hipsters of the coast.